0: Welcome to Doing It On Purpose, your shortcut to reinventing yourself with a few giggles along the way for all good brown girls and beyond. I'm Dal, aka The Happyologist, your host, and after 20 years of a lot of work, I've finally bossed this reinventing myself thing. As a self-proclaimed good brown girl, I've uncovered wellbeing secrets from my global travels and I'm saving you a few decades of work and sharing practical tips for your own reinvention and to help you find your purpose. And I'll be joined by some seriously smart good brand girls from the field of psychology, therapy, health and well-being. So if you're ready for a life upgrade, stay tuned. And don't forget to follow The Happyologist on social media for your daily dose of happy habits. I'm Dal, The Happyologist and I am doing this on purpose. Hi, everyone. It's your pal, Dal. Thanks for joining our podcast. Today, we're talking about the really important topic of neurodivergence with the spotlight on autism in Black Asian and ethnic communities. So if our listeners are anything like me, when you were growing up, you might have been taught not to settle on anything, basically, especially when it comes to professional and academic endeavors, at least. You know, we've been taught how hard our parents work to rebuild their lives as immigrants, You know, and that we should work hard to be better and do better. And and these are great values, don't get me wrong. But what happens when we start comparing and aren't seen as good enough? What about when we learn differently than our peers and are not well supported at school, work or home? So who better to impact this with than the awesome Rina Anand? Rina is a phenomenal person and I have had the privilege of knowing her for a few years now when we met at a book publishing event. So Rena always has such infectious bounds of energy. She's a lawyer and former ombudsman specialising in cases involving vulnerable consumers. She also has two amazingly beautiful children, the eldest of whom is autistic. And Serena has dedicated much of her time to educate herself around autism. And so now she is applying this knowledge and her excellent advocacy skills um, as part of her mission to promote honest conversations around autism and its impact on black, Asian and ethnic communities. So I just want to congratulate Rina first and foremost, you know, on all the excellent work you're doing in this space. It's so needed. And I love how you are openly speaking about this and supporting and educating, you know, hundreds of people all over the UK. So I've got so many questions for you. Um, but can we start off by unraveling you know neurodiversity you know as it is so i know it's a concept that recognizes and celebrates the natural diversity of neurological differences such as autism ADHD dyslexia and that these relate to you know variations in brain function and we are seeing more of a neurodiversity movement at the moment you know advocating for acceptance and inclusion of individuals with neurological differences But can you tell us a bit more about what neurodivergence is and a bit more with a slant on autism and, you know, what the signs are to look out for?
1: Certainly. Firstly, thank you very much for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure to be here Um, and always talking about my most favorite subject. Um, (laughs) So neurodiversity is a word that was coined by Judy Singer. And a lot of people hear it, but don't necessarily know what it means. And all it literally means is uh, neuro is brain, diverse means difference. And we all have a different way that we think and process the world. Um, everybody is falls under the umbrella of neurodiversity. Mm. But the way that the mind is characterized in a particular way is then what makes it kind of uh, labeled, if you want to call it that way, as an autistic Brain or an ADHD brain or something else. So you know, for ADHD, it might be um, what's termed inattentiveness or um, hyperactivity or a com- combination of the two. Um, both are quite. Um, you can sense my somewhat my hesitation because they're very pathological terms mm. um, and they're not exactly positive. But those are that you know, un, you know, the, our language comes from medical terminology, yeah. and so it is often slanted as disorder, some sort of disorder. And, and I think that's what the neurodiversity movement seeks to do is actually, well, that might be the medical model, but actually the social model says we all think differently. We all have talents and mm. abilities and ways in which we can leverage those for the benefit of society. So let's let's start reframing how we think. But to go back to your earlier question of how we characterize autism, I think things have moved on from the three traits that people that would commonly be characterised as autistic. To now looking mostly at social communication being one, and the other is restricted or repetitive patterns of behaviour. And that might sound a bit academic, but in real terms, it might be um, you know difficulties in understanding in relationships. That that reciprocity that happens. Um, there's a lot of of what we say that isn't said verbally it's throughout actions and facial expressions and sometimes if you're autistic that can be a challenge um and sometimes and with regards to say the restricted uh, or repetitive side of things things like wanting sameness routines um you know for, for children it could be things like lining up toys um echolalia which is when you children repeat back what they're told rather than responding um in the way say a neurotypical child might um and there are lots of different kind of markers there's no one definitive marker to say someone is or isn't autistic and that's why you have to look at the child's entire developmental history or an adult's journey what things they're comfortable with uncomfortable with and and kind of piece it together that way
0: wow gosh thanks for unpacking that you know listen to what you said I want to move a bit more on to the diagnosis of of autism, and, and I understand that it's it's much delayed in Black Asian and ethnic communities. You know, so much of South Asian culture revolves around education and the child moving up and the child doing well. And when it doesn't fit that narrative or that paradigm, it's often misunderstood. And I was just listening to what you were saying about you know uh, some of the typical traits, uh, and I and I feel I certainly had ADHD, and especially when you talked about inattentiveness. You know, I wasn't officially diagnosed but you know i was hyperactive too i just couldn't focus and i was just seen as naughty you know much to my father's dissatisfaction and the teacher you know did speak to my father about it and did flag it and she always reassured my my, my dad that you know i was bright especially in creative aspects but he didn't understand it there was a lack of understanding back then we're talking kind of 30 40 years back now uh, you know to be fair on his part so you know I've experienced how learning difficulties you know and differences are seen from a deficit perspective in our community mm. so you know then comes in the point around cultural stigma making it difficult for individuals and families to seek help or accept a diagnosis you know I certainly felt that with me I could see my teacher you know, one of my favorite teachers was rooting for me but um, you could see that my parents didn't really understand it, so you know what's been your observations from a cultural perspective specifically?
1: Um, gosh, there's so much um, mm. I could add on this. So I speak with a lot. Of, so my my work specialises in the um, empowerment of people from global majority, black, Asian, minority ethnic backgrounds. Um, the reason for this is not only just because that's that speaks to my own heritage but because it's an underserved population of people um when we look at diagnostics and assessments these were all created with young white boys in mind mm. and so what happens is often with our children they either get misdiagnosed or failed diagnosis because their presentation um is is different due to cultural factors and lots and lots of reasons um and that's why, you know, speaking to this particular group of people is—I say this group—as it's not a homogenous group; it's made up of so many cultures, each of which are different. But it's that, and, and it's just really important for services, for schools, for parents to be empowered yeah. to know that cultural difference because it, it shows up it, in how parents interact with schools and local authorities. It shows up in how children present. So, to go back to your question around cultural stigma. Firstly, one of the most common stigmas I hear, particularly from schools that I work with, bear in mind that over 90 percent of schools have no global majority representation on the senior leadership teams. Wow. OK, so that we could have a whole of separate podcast mm-hmm. on that. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, so that natural filter of cultural sensitivity, unless you go out and seek it, it's, it's not there. Okay, you have to you have to really educate yourself as school leaders. One of the most common narratives I hear is that parents don't want to engage. They don't they're not interested in hearing that their child's autistic or neurodivergent and they don't want to. I have yet to meet a single parent who I could say is is not all in for their child. It's just not happened. And I've worked with people from the most deprived parts of London. I've worked with parents who are much more affluent right across the board from global majority backgrounds. I have yet to meet a single parent who is not entirely invested in their child's education and well-being
0: wow that's worrying
1: yeah it, it's a really common stigma and that's, there's so many reasons for that there's a lack of representation in the media in services like there's a pervading narrative that people uh, maybe they don't understand because english is not their first language and you know so on and so on and so on but but the reality is that's not the case um yes we do have to remember that there is often no history of autism or neurodiversity in our cultures because these were not these are not terms which translate into our languages these are these are terms that now and there's you know in some communities they you you hear people say they weren't diagnosed until they came to the UK this is a UK problem you know and then when you explain actually autism has always existed neurodiversity has always existed the only difference is we now have language around it and now we can actually uh, understand our children better and use what we know to help improve their outcomes. And that's all it needs. It needs that kind of collaboration with parents as opposed to um, just judgment, really. There's a lot of judgment. Um, Self-judgment, community judgment, judgment from the school, judgment from local authorities. And it just doesn't really stop. There is nonetheless, still, there's a lot of discomfort with sharing with families, for example, that they've got a child who's different, who is autistic. Um, And what one of the things I do with parents is actually, after we've kind of dealt with the whole self empowerment thing, we actually practice with sentence preset sentence starters, how to have that conversation with their mother in law aunt, whoever elder family member that about their child being neurodivergent, because as I said, there is these aren't conversations they have ever had to have before, Mm. and they don't have the language often to have it. So I think the thing with the stigma is it's not one way is where, where I'm going with this. So There's stigma that people internalize and they do experience, but also there is stigma outwardly in society towards people from global majority backgrounds who are autistic or neurodivergent.
0: Wow, gosh, that's... uh, It's quite... I suppose it's quite upsetting to listen to, but I think, you know, I just think how much things have moved on. So, you know, I was saying, what, good 40-odd years ago, I was in a similar position and obviously it wasn't diagnosed at that point. But I feel like even with the generation next generation there still seems to be issues in terms of being able to face into it and actually recognize it as something which needs you know dealing with so I guess so much more work to do there and I think you know one of the things that I find and I know quite a few neurodivergent children and I know your, your children are case in point in this but um you know, they're quite bright and creative and they're out of the box, you know, thinkers, you know, with with a lot of untapped talents, you know, such as, you know, what I've heard, you know, extensive vocabulary, photographic memory and visual learning abilities, just to name a few. I mean, we know that, you know, learning disabilities can coexist with high high IQs as well, from what I understand. So educating parents has, as you say, been an uphill battle and this more collectivist culture and gender roles uh, are some of the big barriers. But, you know, how do we get over that and nurture it? Because I know you've done a lot of work in this space. You've, you, you've, you've moved on from your, you know, career and, you know, really focused and honed in on developing your understanding of this. And then, you know, huge accolade to you to then share it with others. But how do we how do we start to move over to a, a more accepting view of um, of autism? And how do we nurture that, you know, within our communities? It's a really interesting question. It's
1: such a good question. Um, I think as humans, we have a tendency to want to fix things. Um, We've got this perception of how things should be, how our children should behave, how, and and we're really, it's really important to us what other people think of us. Um, And I think that's really true in many collectivist cultures. And I certainly, I can speak to that certainly from my own experience Mm. in my own culture. Um, And I think, A really key component of this is instead of looking at how you change your child or how you change other people's perception of your child is you actually need to do the inner work first and stop and ask yourself how do I perceive my child if you are engaging in behaviors and this I'm not saying this out of a place of judgment but as, as a parent who's been on this journey who is on this journey and will be on this journey for the rest of my life. There is no end. It's Mm. just an evolving journey. I'm continually learning about my children and adapting to their needs. But it's so important to self-reflect and ask yourself, how do you see your child? Because if you see your child as deficient in some way, then that's the message that you will, whether consciously or not, you are going to be passing on to your child through the way you speak to them and through how you act towards them. If you see your child, as the most beautiful gift, the most incredible being, you know, and I say this, having been a parent who, I mean, I was up at 4.30 this morning with one of them, you know, it's challenging. But if you can, at the core of your being, accept your child for the unique being they are, exactly as they are without wanting to change them, that translates in how you will interact with your child, but it will also massively influence how other people see your children. If you talk about your child from a place of shame, You're basically giving license to other people to view your children in the same way. So it's not out of judgment, but we have to really reflect on when we're saying to our children to do things or not do things, where is it coming from? Is it coming from ego because we don't want to be seen as parents who are ineffective? Or is it coming from a place of I need to enforce this particular rule or value because it's inherent to their well-being, it will safeguard them. It is something which I need them to, you know, adopt to enhance their character and having that constant kind of filter in your mind will hugely impact how you see your child, but then that will impact how other people see your child.
0: Mm, I love that. Honestly, that's really resonated with me. I think that's beautiful. And I think, you know, what you're saying around reframing your thinking, because that's what you need to do. You need to reframe yourself. And also the point that you were saying is that children pick up on this. So whatever they're hearing you articulate, you know, this is labels again, isn't it? So you start to play into that. So when I was younger, you know, people would, you know, throw around the word, she's a bit stupid, you know, and you start to think that you are stupid because that's what you're hearing right so you know innately you start to believe everything you're hearing and and I suppose your parents because they're seeing a certain behavior associate that with you know not being able not being intelligent or bright so before you know it, you're creating this whole environment where you know this language like you say is being used and then everyone plays into that role you know your parents are thinking a certain way your teachers are saying oh I'll put her on the we used to have like a you know, uh like a dunce desk, almost mm-hmm. honestly that's yeah. what I think that's what it's called, you know where you'd all be grouped together, um so you start to believe in that, so I love the way that you're saying about reframing and thinking about actually how you're how you're talking about this,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talk about it every day, um every single day, I will tell Evie that he is the most beautiful gift that could ever have happened to me because we have to remember as well our children who are neurodivergent are in a world that was not built for them so there are reminders everywhere mm. that they are different and if we aren't careful to kind of counterbalance that with our own positivity um, and view of them their selves then that feeling of being othered yeah, will just overtake. So we've got to counterbalance that. We have to remind our children constantly, and our children are also more inclined to develop other mental health related challenges, anxiety a, a medical, medically diagnosed level. Um, so we've got to be very conscious, very deliberate about the language that we use and and, and tell our children how we see them. Don't in, expect it to be inferred. You know, sometimes you'll have parents. I mean, my generation of parents is like well would have said well you know I was never told I was loved as a child ever ever that's just not language that we use in our our house Um, but if you'd said to my parents do they love me they would have said of course I do don't I go out and work seven days a week for them on the table that's all love but actually we can't expect our neurodivergent children to extract that the things that we're doing for them is out of a place of love we have to be much more explicit
0: yeah, spot on. And actually, just building on that point, you know, I'm just thinking about kind of uh, the next generation above our parents, right? And, you know, some some families still live with that kind of that next generation. And I guess, you know, you can reframe your thinking and what you say, but actually, you know what communities are like when they come together. So actually, and some of them are a bit along in the tooth to want to change their, their thinking. So what, what do you suggest that, you know, you say to that more older generation that, you know, sometimes don't think before they speak? I don't know how would we deal with a situation like that. I guess it's a, another full and frank conversation, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I think there's okay. I mean, I I, I see. I've experienced this directly. <laughs> totally. yeah, yeah. I think you've got to be very intentional about where you go with your children. And whom they spend time with. Now, I'm not saying cut off ties with all your extended families. And obviously being from a collectivist family, our families are, there's generally a lot of people around. Yeah. Um, that's not even like blood family. That could be just, you know, aunties, adopted aunties and yeah. things like that. Right. Yeah. Um, but I am very careful about where I take every, mm-hmm. if, if I don't think I'm going to a neuro inclusive environment, I will either go myself or I will um take him and be very clear about how long I'm staying for what I'm doing fortunately I don't have to do that very much because I'm very much in my own power when it comes to being neuroaffirming and be very open and I think when you when you are open and positive about your child's diagnosis and their needs actually it gives permission to other people to, to reciprocate and yeah. it shows them it role models to them how yeah. to be with your child um but, you know, my mother-in-law is in her mid-80s now. She was a teacher for over 30 years. And she said to me, there was no there was no way in her entire teaching career she had an autistic child in her class. Well. Wow. It was a long time ago, and mm. they probably were there. But we didn't have the language. And um, You know, now we've got, you know, diagnoses, and we've got actual language around this and assessments and, and things like this. So it's not that they weren't there. It's just they weren't seen. But she has just entirely embraced and it was hard for her very hard she thinks the world of is her only at that time her only grandson and it took her a while to move from that deficit way of thinking to a positive way of thinking but as she has done that um they have it's transformed into the most beautiful relationship to the point where I'm happy to leave my kids with them and I know that they will they will model whatever practices I do they've adopted neuroaffirming language it's a journey and we have to have a bit of compassion for our elders the easiest thing to do is to judge people yeah is the, and, or to write them off before they've even been given a chance yeah, yeah. it's just the easiest thing but actually think about it from their point of view you're, you're introducing a concept they may never have heard of before um and and often you know like i said they think it's a western thing it's not doesn't happen back home and all this so you've got to be a bit patient but actually there's also a lot of resources in different languages which can be helpful you just have to make sure that you're picking the neuroaffirming ones, but where there's a will, you know, I don't mean to sound too cliche, but where there is that commitment to I'm taking you on this journey because you want to be on this journey as well. Mm. Okay. That's the other thing. You know, if, if someone is not interested, then you've got to make your decisions, right? But if someone's actually interested, but they just don't know what to do and how to do it, you can be that person that helps them. And honestly, every person I've spoken to, tells me that somebody in their friends or family circle is neurodivergent but until you've shared it Yes, so be the then the, flood go,
0: so the floodgates open, right? And everyone wants yeah. to share it. So what I'm hearing from you is, is to keep them safe. So being aware yeah. of the environments they're in, and then making sure they are safe from that uh, kind of environment. And, I, and I'm and i similar, really. So, you know, I speak, I speak to my dad about it now. And I say, Dad, I think I was, you know, neurodivergent. And I, you know, I think this is what I was, this is why I was a bit troublesome when I was a child. And you know, sometimes he laughs and he's like, oh, I don't know, you know, you're just a naughty kid, but it's still, he doesn't still quite get it. But I was quite mm-hmm. lucky. So I had teachers that believed in me because when I would go on to do English literature or art or music, you know, they'd think, wow, there's something here. And they nurtured that in me. And then I went on to do, you know, similar you, did my law degree, you know, worked in corporate, you know, similar to yourself. So I was able to be in that environment where it wasn't kind of uh, frowned upon. And actually I was nurtured. So I was really lucky and I didn't have that diagnosis back then. But as I say, well, I had a very kind of forward-thinking teachers. But, you know, what are the risks if you don't do something about it once a diagnosis has been given? What's the, what's the risk to the child? I think
1: if you've gone as far as getting a diagnosis, um, and I don't know any parents, I don't think I've met parents you know, who fall into this category, but if you try to hide it in some way or try to pretend it doesn't exist you're really doing a massive disservice to the child because as parents, of course, we will do everything we can to protect our children. And there's so much we can curate in our environments. We can can control who they spend time with, um, whether they go anywhere outside of school or not, what clubs or societies they go to. There's so much, but the reality is we're not going to be able to do that forever. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. part of our duty is to prepare children for the world and a part of that is the reality that not everyone's going to be neuroaffirming. So for me, certainly with Evie, my path is to not only build his resilience, but also to build his ability to self-advocate and but also to understand his own needs and challenges so he can go into an environment and say, I'm really comfortable with this. I'm finding this really challenging. This is what I need, or this is what I'm going to do, and not feel in any way less than because of it so if you know there are some parents who maybe get a diagnosis and don't tell their child now I can't say blanket you know when you should tell your child I told Evie when he was six didn't really understand it I told him again when he was seven and he got it and I got some books around it and we have lots of discussions around it and it's really just part of the way it's just part of our daily conversations at home it comes into everything Um, and he's developing that ability to self-advocate but I think if you're not looking at your you know even if you ha- if you have the diagnosis but you're making all of the adjustments from a needs based perspective great that's fine okay but if you have the diagnosis and then just pretend it doesn't it's not there you're not helping your child you know by adapting your environment to their needs that friction that square peg round hole analogy eventually that child is going to experience some levels of trauma and if home is meant to be the ultimate safe place they're not going to get what they would get at home anywhere else. So, home should be the place where they can truly be themselves. Um, so, we have a duty to create environments which seize our children for who they are and creates, you know, scaffold all that scaffolding and protection that can nurture their beautiful talents, but also provide them with that safety when, when they need it.
0: Yeah. So, take the blinkers off, really. And I think you know, even you know, think about Evie, such a well-rounded child. And I think if you hadn't done. Something about it sooner, um he will not be as well rounded as he is, so actually, from a young age, you were able to take him on that journey, so he's just like any other child um but if you hadn't and you leave it later and later, then it becomes more and more difficult to be able to deal with, i guess so actually, once you are aware and you know that you know that they they um are neurodivergent, then it actually the sooner that you can do something about it and 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 you know the, going back to your point around making it acceptable for them that it's just a normal thing and in your environment just makes it a little bit easier for them. So I love that. But specifically in autism, is there actually a known cause for autism? And can it actually be treated? Because a lot of, you know, Asian parents say, oh, there's a pill for that. worry, take, take a few pills yeah. in a year's time, be brilliant. But actually, is there something that's caused it? And actually, is there something that can actually treat it?
1: So it's not an illness, so it doesn't need to be treated. Um, and I'll just myth bust the most common myth out there that it's caused by vaccines it's not there was one study that thought it was and it's been widely discredited since it's not related to the MMR at all cannot get autism through that now there continues to be research in this area it's something I I do you know keep my eye on keep my finger on the pulse of so far it's believed to be a combination of environment and genetics okay so it is just an evolutionary thing um and so rather than kind of focusing, I say to parents, focusing on where it's come from, um, yeah. focus on how you can really set up your child for success um so that they can thrive, because that would be a much better use of energy and time. Um I was given lots of things, lots of advice. Go to India, find a doctor, um, go to do head massages to reduce his hyperactivity and you know all sorts of things. Wow. The the reality is um there will always be somebody out there to rip you off. Okay, and what I would say is, and again, not from a place of judgment, if you're running for solutions, I would really ask yourself, have you accepted that your child might be different? And what is the where is this fear driven reaction coming from? What is it that you feel you're missing out on or that you're losing because your child is different? Because when you tackle that, reconcile yourself with the fact that your child is different and then move, you can then move into that space of actually celebrating them for who they are. You know, and I, I feel like I have maybe not presented the most balanced picture of my life with Evie. You know, yes, we have our challenges, but a hundred times over, I wouldn't change anything for the world. You know, yes, I have broken sleep sometimes. Yes, he gets some, you know, he's very emotional, can get upset. But my goodness, the child is just, it's just a phenomenal human being mm. that. I can't wait to see how he grows and develops and what gifts he gives to the world through his um, very
0: unique talents and abilities. I love that. And just even listening to you, you can hear that, you know, he must be in such a great nurturing environment and that's probably going to help him grow. So it's so beautiful to hear Again, you know, and you're talking a lot about, you know, how as a parent you feel. So it must have been a challenge for you. In fact, you gave up, you know, a, a really uh, awesome career to move into this and to educate yourself, which, again, is so um, commendable. I absolutely love that. And then, you know, uh, investing all your time to help educate people. I think that's great. But just around on the mindset piece, so if you're a parent and you've had this news, you're trying to deal with a lot of things. Is there support for the actual parent? themselves to to be able to be supported on this so you've got your child but actually until you're right to your point and your mindset's not right and you've got all these things floating in your hand from you know a million messages that you've heard around you know autism and what it means is there anything that parents can access to get them into a place yeah. of understanding so I mean part of the reason why I've done what I've done is
1: because when when I got his diagnosis there was nowhere that saw me the entire person that I am. Yeah. So being from an Asian background. You know, I didn't there weren't groups, there weren't, you know, people, even even professionals that I was interacting with, none of them were from my background. And so it was really hard for me to explain what I was going through um, as the as a daughter-in-law, as a mother, you know, as the parent of a first child mm. from an Asian background. Um, there was there wasn't any of that. There were lots of groups facilitated um, by white women predominantly attended by white women. And so that's one of the reasons why I entered into doing this because women from the global majority and fathers too, but predominantly is it is mothers that, I, I, that tend to come to my sessions, um, do need that safe space. And when you see other people like you in the room, magic happens mm. because you suddenly realize at a very real level that you're not alone. And it's hugely transformative and the networks they build and the, you know, things like that. So I've got a, a free parent community that parents join. They can ask questions. Um, I'm building up an entire membership that that is intended to be free for parents but that will be packed with resources, checklists and all sorts of things oh, wow. um, so that that community vibe is nurtured um between four parents uh, from global majority backgrounds.
0: Oh, I love that. Well done, for creating those communities. I think the more that we create these communities, the more it becomes part of our everyday language and our vocabulary, right? And it becomes acceptable, which is what we're trying to get to a place, I guess, is that it becomes, you know, quite rightly yeah. more acceptable. Um So... From what you understand can uh, individuals with autism can they go on to lead normal lives um, and, and what challenges might they expect as they grow if any
1: so we live in a neuronormative society and what i mean by that is a society that was not created and the structures weren't necessarily created by neurodivergent people mm. and so in a way autistic and neurodivergent people are on the back foot because the education system the recruitment processes for most jobs, all of these things were not created with neuroaffirmative mm. practices or neuroinclusion in mind. Mm-hmm. So, so I wouldn't say in terms of normal lives, but can they live healthy, full, thriving lives? Absolutely. And I would also go as far as to say every major event in history, every major invention, you know, huge strides in acting and the arts, these people are often neurodivergent Mm. Um, and if you don't believe me you can just type in google top 10 neurodivergent artists actors actresses pianists you know whatever um huge contributions made to the world but yes challenges are abound so I do a lot of work with organizations corporate organizations and to look at how you can create that neuroinclusive workplace, how you base, you know, for a lot of neurodivergent people, they can't even get as far as the interview because the mm. application process is just not designed with um, their needs in mind. Mm. And actually, um, these are the sorts of challenges that, that businesses can address them. And, they, and not many are. There's lots of great examples in society of organizations who have really sat down and looked at does there have to be an interview what are other options what information can we send out ahead of an interview bios and profiles interview questions and things and just questioning what their reasoning is behind doing things a particular way so yes there are lots of challenges but I am optimistic about the future because I see businesses big businesses especially really committing time and attention to looking at how they can um really leverage on this neurodivergent challenge. And it's not without, it's not all altruistic. Mm-hmm. They know, and the business case has been proven, read any report by McKinsey or any of the other kind of leading people in this space, and they will tell you, you've got a neurodivergent uh, workforce, a, a, a neurodiverse workforce, which includes neurodivergent people, you're going to make more money. Wow. So they're invested in getting this right because they know they're going to have out-of-the-box thinkers, productive people. You know, an ADHD, in hyper-focus mode, you won't get any better uh, less distracted person than them right so they know and they're try- they also trying to tap into that so wow i'm optimistic i always remain optimistic
0: yeah well quite rightly from what you're saying some of the stats that you've said and actually examples of it and, and i love it you know from the start of this session uh you know even up until now i'm thinking you know, it kind of feels like a gift almost right so you know we're moving from this kind of real negative you know thinking to actually seeing it as a gift and actually repositioning how we talk about it in that way because that's what it Absolutely sounds like. So I I think that's that's phenomenal. You know, what about access to services? So you mentioned some of them, and certainly the great stuff that you're doing around communities, but you know, especially in, you know, black, Asian ethnic communities, I guess things like, you know, economic factors, uh, geographical location, um, you know, systemic inequalities, they exist, let's have it right. But, you know, how do how do people navigate this, you know, in, in these communities?
1: It's really challenging. Um, that the, That's the truth. So if you are from a black, Asian, minority ethnic background and you have a learning disability, um, you are 20 percent likely to die sooner than a white person with a learning disability. There are health inequalities. Um, and I know that autism is not a learning disability, mm. but it's just to kind of highlight the point around the discrepancy and the differences there between, you know, health outcomes, but often people there are there is often a co- correlation too between some health uh, learning disabilities mm. and um, neurodivergent conditions. Basically, the more you have deprivation and you have pro- multiple p- protected characteristics. So, if you are um, from the LGBTQ plus community, plus you are from a global majority community, plus you are a woman plus you have a disability, plus, you know, all of those things together, if you have a lower level of education, these things will all make it much more challenging and provide, you know, less access to resources and the right levels of support. Um, And this is, you know, I see this, I'm I'm working on various projects with the NHS and the the data is startling on the, the, the life experience of people from those backgrounds, uh, versus, say, you know, the white British population. Mm. I think the, you know, the only thing we can do is continue to not just investigate because we we've seen the data, you know, the NHS data. They've been recording this for the last five years, and it's consistently showing disparities. So we we've seen the difference, but it's actually what's the action that's happening behind it? Um, and actually, we all have the ability to do something, even if that even if that something is us educating ourselves on where there are where people are marginalized familiarizing ourselves with what that marginalization looks like in those communities because often maybe these aren't people that we are familiar with or in our circles and then using our voice and using our privilege because we all have some level of privilege to help to not just amplify the voice but to create some equity for people from these backgrounds
0: so there's there's a there's a lot of access to you know lots of different avenues i guess it's just taking advantage of it I suppose so it's not it's not for there being the education and and the support there it's 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 about actually tapping into it Mm -hmm. so you know this brings me on to you know you do so much work in this space such brilliant work and you know going back to our point you know educating parents you know schools organizations you've got all this but what are the typical common questions you get asked about you know autism you know what what are the standard types of questions and you know what what's your response
1: so probably one of the most common questions is how do I tell my family that my child's autistic? That's that's really common. Um and I would that's when I would start, as I mentioned before, about okay, well we need to talk about how you see your child's autism first before we start talking about how you're going to talk to other people about it. Um mm-hmm. the other question I often get is my child's I feel like my child's addicted to screen time. Um how can I, you know, and if I remove their lap, iPad or you know they all the phones they just completely have a meltdown and so it's firstly providing a bit of reassurance because for a lot of neurodivergent children using having screen time is a form of uh, regulation self-regulation Um, and when we see it as a tool for self-regulation bearing in mind of course as parents we look at what is it they're doing um, is it something that's going to inflame them and you know kind of agitate them, or is it something more calming? So if, if I take my own you know children, so m- mine love to look at YouTube videos on creating art, quilling, mm. harmer beads, that kind of thing. Now if they were, if it was a, a video game type scenario, um, which was particularly violent, then yes, I'm going to have something to say about that, and that might be iP- iPad time or screen time that I restrict to a particular time you know work with them to agree a certain time and place but you know um for them I recognize that they need that to to just process that that busyness of the day they've had which is much more exhausting for them than it is for a neurotypical child so a lot of it is parents I think comparing their children to what they what they envision a neurotypical child should be doing and then worrying you know about that Um, and there's variations of that my child doesn't sleep my child doesn't eat you know and it's like well
0: okay yeah so a lot lot, I guess a lot of the questions that you ask is kind of coming out fear more than anything else um but kind of like reinforcing actually you know even the things that you were saying about you know google top 10 top 100 you know uh you know people that are, are super smart actually I think it's just relaying that again isn't it and saying actually did you know because you know I'm quite astounded by that um so I think just that that Forms part of that kind of whole assurance yeah. piece, isn't it? I
1: had one parent once. I'll just share with you quickly. She said to me, um, "My child, when she's dysregulated, she crawls under the bed, and I'm really not happy." I was, and I said, "Okay, why?" She said, "Oh, because it's not normal to crawl under a bed." So we just sat there with that, and I said, "Okay, what's your child doing?" So she's de- you know uh, regulating herself while she's under there, and then when she's regulated, she comes out. I'm like, okay. And the problem with that is, and there was a long pause and she was like, nothing, it's just different. Mm. Your child's able to self-regulate and they do it that way. That's remarkable, actually. You know, we all, you know, do things. There's so many things we do to self-regulate. Yeah, We don't even recognize and other people don't recognize because society sees it as usual. I might twirl my hair, flick my pen take 10 deep breaths, run on the spot. No one's going to say anything about that. (laughs) Mm. But because she's crawling under a bed and you don't see other people crawling under their bed, you see that as wrong in some way. So we've just got to just be aware of our judgments, of our children and their behavior and really just ask ourselves, is it helping or harming them? Or is it our ego showing up? Yeah,
0: Oh, that's a a whole separate topic we'll have to go in at some point. But I think ego does have a massive, massive part to play, certainly in our communities, you know, if we're honest about it. I could unpack this forever with you because it's so interesting. You know, all the various bits of information you've given, honestly, are going to have such impact. So thank you for that. But, you know, as you know, I'm a happyologist. um, So always keen to ask this question uh, when I have wonderful guests like yourself uh, on the podcast. So knowing what you know now, what, would you say the key to happiness is?
1: I would say finding your purpose. Mm, Yes. and, And, you know, that doesn't have to be some great, big, grand, save the world thing. But what is it that you can do or do, which makes you really feel aligned, that makes you feel like when you get out, out of bed in the morning, you really want to do it. Yeah. And yeah. I have to say, for the first time in my life, I didn't know. I didn't know it was an, a feeling one could even have. Actually, it felt very academic to me. But I only realised when I started this work that I'd found my purpose. Wow,
0: I love that. And you know, he taught you on that journey, right? So he took you on to kind yeah. of find. And I tips. tell him all the time,
1: and I say to him, I'm so grateful because you you have lifted my life. You have given my life a meaning I didn't know it had you had to show me that path yeah and he'll say you're welcome
0: what a beautiful I love that I love the fact that you acknowledge that's just amazing and then one more kind of quick fire question is you know if you knew um then what you do now what would you tell your 20 year old self
1: I'd say it's okay to be different and then if we could really go a bit further than actually you can really utilize your difference to be your USP and anchor your power in that difference and and really use it um, to the best of your ability to enhance your own and others' lives. Be okay with being
0: different. Yeah. And we are now in a society that's just going to grow where we are. We are able to celebrate our differences and, you know, I absolutely love that. So look, I'm going to ask a question on behalf of everyone that's listening. You know, where can we find out more about you? So, you know, I, I guess you uh, you do workshops, you know, I know you do some brilliant blogs, you've done podcasts in the past. How can we, how can we find out more about you? So all my social media links
1: um, and email, everything is on my website, which is reenaonland.com. Yeah, if you click on any of the Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn icons on that, it will take you straight to that page. And you can even drop me an email as well at hello at com.
0: Oh, brilliant. Thank you for that. Uh, As I say, look, uh, Reena, huge thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing, you know, uh, how you've gone through this journey yourself and giving us some reassurance. There's a lot I took away there, especially around, you know, getting to a place of reframing our thinking around this, you know, making sure that we're supportive and we're creating a safer environment you know, to be able to support our children around this, be more open about it. The more that we talk about it more openly, the more we'll be able to create communities and we can kind of normalise this, which is exactly where we should be. And we really need to kind of seek to shift the conversation from this deficit-based approach to one that really embraces, you know, and accommodates neurodivergent you know, individuals. So I'm sure we'll get to that place with wonderful humans like yourself that are, you know, fighting for that cause. I'm sure that we'll get there. So thank you so much. Thank you for being uh, on the podcast today. Thank you to all our listeners and I wish you all love and light. Thanks for tuning in, lovely listeners. Any questions or thoughts? Drop me an email at com and follow me on my social media, The Happyologist, to stay connected for regular empowering insights to supercharge your journey to purpose.